Yeah, this is the last week of the Esther sermon series. Uh, when you came in, you were hopefully handed a book for the next sermon series on Jonah. And, and we're just sort of continuing these three sermon series we did with Daniel, Esther, and now Jonah that are sort of what it was like for Jews outside of Israel, outside of Judea, to try to live out their faith in God in a pagan culture. And so that's going to be Jonah. He's sent to a pagan culture. We'll look at that. And, uh, and so we're going to, we, like Julie said, we're finishing up Esther today. If you read the last chapters of Esther, 8, 9, 10, uh, when I you know, studied it, read it, uh, it re- reminded me, a, a painting came to my mind uh, that was done by a guy named Edvard Munch that painted one of the most iconic paintings in Western art. He painted it in 1893. It's called The Scream. Here it is right here. It's sort of a precursor to kind of a you know, modern-day horror film. I mean, it's kind of like a character in a horror film. And uh, many of you probably feel like this more today than a smiley face. Uh, but what was inspiring that painting, he was walking with a couple of his friends. He's Norwegian outside of Oslo, walking with some friends kind of at sunset. And the sunset was an unusual sunset. The sky became blood red. And he says that the sky became like blood and it like was filled with like tongues of fire. And here's what he said. He said, I, I sensed this. I had I stood there trembling with anxiety. I stood there looking at the sunset, trembling with anxiety. And I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. And so he, he painted this. And in many ways, I think this and that feeling of trembling with anxiety and a sense of an infinite scream passing through nature is closer to reality in our world than the smiley face. The smiley face is kind of like a clown. It's sort of exaggeratingly disconnected from reality. Because everything is not okay with this world, and you know everything is not okay in your life. Everything's not okay. This idea of don't worry, be happy is not reality. Completely unhelpful. So if you're somebody who stands trembling with anxiety, you are closer to reality than the person who's saying, don't worry, be happy. This person is more disconnected from reality than your anxiety, feelings of anxiety are. In fact, your feelings of anxiety are probably fairly connected to reality. This is the message over and over in a thousand different ways in the Bible. Everything's not okay, and God judges people who pretend otherwise. When he says this in Jeremiah, his prophet Jeremiah says this in chapter six, he says, prophets and priests alike, this is God speaking in in the context, prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. And here's the lying, here's the deceit that they practiced when, when God's talking. He says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. They dress the wound of my people as though this is not serious. They're practicing deceit. They're lying to people when they say, don't worry, be happy. There's a serious condition. There's a serious wound here. And he says, he sums it up. He says, they say, peace, peace.
peace, they say, when there is no peace. Now that word in Hebrew, the, if you look at this in the Hebrew that it was written in, that word, you know, it's shalom. Shalom is not a, a greeting, it is, but it's not peace. It means peace, but it's not like the peace sign. It's, it's this word that has this much fuller sense of, of flourishing, this, this sense of things are as they should be. This, I'm not living in a world where I have to convince myself, don't worry, be happy. I'm in a world of shalom, where I, I am happy. And God says, that's not the world we live in. And if somebody's feeding you that, they're feeding you lies. Now, if you don't understand that, if you don't see the world this way, you're, you're for sure not going to understand the last chapters of the book of Esther. They're going to be super hard on you. And you're going to say, these don't even belong in the Bible. There's no way this can be a Bible kind of book. Because the book of Esther takes a ominous turn the last three chapters. Here's what happened in the book of Esther. If you've just come in here and you're new and you've missed the other three sermons, four sermons, what's happened is, is that a Jewish girl was brought into the harem of the emperor of Persia, Xerxes. The Persian Empire went all the way from India all the way through modern-day Iran, that actually is modern-day Persia, all the way through Palestine, up near the Black Sea, all the way up Turkey, and to the very top of Greece, and it went all the way of northern Africa. The Persian Empire is the largest global empire of its time, and it's going to last 200 years. It is an empire designed to stay. It has the government structure with the satraps that are going to make it stay until Alexander the Great decides otherwise. 150 years after what we're reading here. And so it is a huge empire. And what happened is, is that this Jewish girl, through making a lot of compromises, she hid her Jewish identity and she made moral compromises where she eventually becomes queen of Persia. Xerxes chooses her to be queen, according to the book of Esther. And so she becomes queen and five years go by. And now... Xerxes, for reasons we've talked about in previous sermons, has a guy that's his right-hand man who's kind of taken power, kind of being the king where there is no king in charge. He's kind of become this king kind of figure. And he has this ancestral hatred of the Jews, intense hatred of the Jews. So he wants to completely wipe them all out throughout the entire Persian Empire. Remember, this Persian Empire is really big. He wants, and includes Palestine, he wants to completely wipe out the Jews. So he kind of does this stealthy thing where he convinces Xerxes that there's a people he knows about that's a threat to him. If he just gives them the word, he'll take care of it and he'll remove this threat and exterminate these people from his empire. Doesn't mention who they are. So Xerxes, for reasons we talked about, just gives him his signet ring and says, just do whatever you want, make it happen. And so there's this edict that says, all throughout the Persian empire, if you are a government authority, you need to try to tell all those in your community who hate the Jews on this date, 12 months from now, they can legally kill all the Jews. In fact, they need to kill all the Jews. And this becomes this government-wide edict. And so Esther's cousin, a guy named Mordecai, goes to Esther and says, you've got to beg the king 
to reverse this edict. She says, I don't even have a relationship with him anymore. It's been five years. It's been 30 days since we've even seen each other. He convinces her to take the risk, expose her Jewish identity, beg the king to re, re, you know, rescind this edict. So she says, okay, if I perish, I perish. She kind of has a real moment of courage and she goes to the king and it turns out the king gets mad at Haman, this guy that's got the edict because the queen convinced him that he's trying to kill her and her family, her people. So Xerxes has him impaled, killed, and gives Haman's wealth to Esther. And that's the end of chapter seven. That's the great reversal Keith talked about last week. If you missed that sermon, you need to go back and hear it. And if you're not careful when you're reading the book of Esther, you think that's the ending. And they lived happily ever after, after Mordecai and Esther. But that's not the ending because remember, wait a minute, wait a minute. The whole reason why Esther had to drum up the courage, risk her life, expose her identity was to keep the edict that was all throughout the empire of exterminating the Jews from going into effect. That didn't get changed. So even two months after Haman's been impaled and there's this happy ending at the end of chapter seven, two months have gone by, but the edict is still in force. In 10 more months, the Jews are gonna be legally exterminated throughout the Persian Empire. So we pick up in chapter eight, verse three, and it says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman. That's the guy that had the other edict, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. It goes on, and here's what she pleaded. Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. So she's saying, just cancel it, reverse it. And here's what Xerxes says to her. He says, the King, Xer- King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai. He's been brought in now to the court. He says this, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on, on the pole that, that, I, that he set up. It goes on, he says, now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring And he gave them his signet ring, like he gave to Haman. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Sounds like really great news, right? You know what? Here's my ring. You just write, seal it with my ring. Whatever you think's going to be for the best interest of the Jews, you handle it. Because whatever's been sealed with the king's ring can't be revoked. That's great news. They walk away and then they stop and their steps get slower and they wait, no, wait, wait a minute. Haman's edict to exterminate all the Jews throughout the empire was signed with the king's ring. So Xerxes with a wink is saying that can't be revoked. So you're gonna have to figure out something but you can't revoke the edict that's going to allow the empire to exterminate the Jews. Can't do that. So Esther and Mordecai have to figure it out and they figure out that, okay, we have to come up with another edict signed with the king's ring that somehow, somehow mirrors that edict in enough way to kind of nullify it, kind of neutralize it. And so they write an edict that basically says, if you look at it in in, in chapter uh, eight, uh, eight, verse 10, 
Mordecai wrote in the name of the king, king Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Now, I got that in yellow because I thought it was kind of cool. When I read that recently, it reminded me of a book that I read by historian Tom Holland, who is, just go ahead and answer that, we'll wait. No, that's okay, no, just, we'll wait. Jennifer, it's important. Are you sure? Okay. So, where was I? Oh yeah, horses. So I, I read that, and, and I read Tom Holland's book, Persian, Persian Fire, on the history of the Persian Empire, especially this time period. And he talks about how what was one of the things that was really cool and unique about Persia, that when they took over the Mede, the, they, they inherited this horse breeding thing that they had been doing for hundreds of years. Where these, the, He says there were these white, strong, swift, beautiful horses that they had bred, especially for the king of the Persian Empire. And that was one of the things that was really cool about being king of Persia. And so here you have the book of Esther, very aware. It sounds like somebody was there. Somebody, sounds like somebody's telling us what happened. Those horses, these, they're called Nisian horses. Uh, Nisian horses. You know, when you read something, you have to take your best guess how it's pronounced. Nisian horses, uh, especially bred for the king. Big, white, fast, beautiful, strong horses. Those are the horses that are being used to take this entire new edict that Esther and Mordecai had written. And so we pick up the next verse. It says, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city, here's what it said, the right to assemble and protect themselves. So he can't nullify this edict, but now they're gonna make another edict that says, okay, all Jews everywhere in the entire Persian empire have the right to assemble, organize, and they have a right to protect themselves. And then it says language that this edict said to the T. It's just directly mirroring the first edict that said exterminate the Jews. And so it allows for this language. It says to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Same language. The armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children. So they're saying we can't revoke this, but we can make an edict that says if you do this, we can do this, and hopefully it gets neutralized. So chapter 9, verse 1, it says, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out on such and such a date. I cut that just for sake of time. Ten months from now, all the horses are going out. On this day, and then it's talking about that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand, over those who hated them. So the politics changed. Now Xerxes is backing Esther and Mordecai in their plan. And this edict goes out on all the Nisian horses, this proof that they come from his horses. And they're part of the kings, they got the king's signature. So now all these satraps and all these governors throughout the Persian Empire, if you know anything about them in history, they always were people who kissed. Xerxes asphalt, whatever you want to call it. But they were always making sure they were on the right side of Xerxes because he was brutal if you weren't. So they could put their finger in the wind and say, okay, I need to back the Jews edict, this new edict. And so now the tables are turned and that's become now the political thing. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see how that worked. So verse 16, it says, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves, this is on that date, and get relief from their enemies. 
They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on, on their plunder. So now we look at verse 20. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of, the king, of King Xerxes, near and far, it's huge, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the months of Adar. This is well after that, saying, let's do this. Now that you did this, naturally, let's do this every year. And so as the, time when, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And so that holiday became Purim. It's gonna be actually uh, celebrated by Jews a little over two weeks on March 7th. It's been celebrated over 2,500 years ever since this because, well, we can assume that they're celebrating it because it started with this. It started with this celebration. But when you read it, it's weird, right? 75,000 people killed, and that's a celebration. And it doesn't set right, right? Now, let's think about it. This, this all happened because of uh, corruption within the Persian Empire. This Haman guy who wanted to use his power to exterminate the Jews, tricked the king of Persia into an edict that's going to exterminate the Jews through government help through all the provinces. So, so it started because of that, and that couldn't be revoked. But then the king gave Esther and Mordecai the ability to come up with another edict that allowed them to legally and violently protect themselves against any armed force that came against them. They could legally and violently protect themselves. And it turns out 75,000 people throughout the empire still tried to kill them. And so they, there was a lot of bloodshed. And a lot of people were killed. What do you do with that? Well, let me help you by showing you a picture of a blobfish. Here's a blobfish right here. If you pull that fish out of the ocean, set it on your boat, that's what a blobfish looks like. Now, a blobfish doesn't really look like that. That's what a blobfish looks like if you take it out of its habitat, which is way deep in the ocean. The pressure is so extensive where it lives in the ocean, it is 60 to 120 times the water pressure than there is at the surface of the sea. So if you take it out of its extreme pressure and bring it up where there's not the pressure, it just looks like this confusing, unattractive blob. But this is what a blobfish looks like when it's down there in the pressure. It looks like a fish. That's a happy fish. And it's in the pressure, and it doesn't look like a blob. Well, this story in Esther, I think, is kind of like this, but we see it like this because we're not in the pressure. We're uh, 2,500 years later in a very, very different world that's 2,000 years since Jesus came, we have a very different structure. We have a very different ethic. It's not near as violent. And so the violence we read in Esther, in that context, in that pressure, looks like a big, confusing blob. But here's what you have to remember. Read any history book of any period before Jesus was born. And it was an incredibly violent period. Oppression and violence were the name of the game. That was the norm. I don't know if there's any exceptions that I know about. And so 
that was the whole culture of every culture everywhere in the world. So there's reasons for this. The Bible gives us in the Old Testament. We're not going to have time to go into that. But God wants to change the world. God wants to redeem the world. God wants to change this structure from violence to one of true shalom. And so he calls out a guy named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 out of his paganism, out of Babylon, and he brings him into the land of Palestine. It's a, it's a land filled with violence and idol worship, uh, but he brings him as a single guy and he's kind of running around and there's a little guy running around Palestine all of his life. But God says, I'm going to, through you, through your descendants, I'm going to redeem the world. Every nation on earth is going to be blessed through you, through your descendants. This is my plan. Your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky, the sand and the seashore, and through your offspring, one, all nations on earth will be blessed. Well, that was predicting Jesus, the offspring, the Messiah. But a lot of time goes by between the time God calls Abraham and then the descendants and then their descendants in Israel and they're freed from Israel through Moses and they become a nation. And this nation is a nation from the very beginning that has violence because there's violence everywhere. And for this people to exist in a world of violence, they have to be violent. So when you read your Old Testament, every book of the Bible you read has violence. Every book of the Bible you read has the Jews preserving themselves through fighting their enemies who are trying to destroy them. And so the book of Esther is no different. You're still in the Old Testament. And it's still before Christ. And here's the thing. That even though there's this bloodshed and we don't like the bloodshed, well, God doesn't like it either, but it's a world of violence. It is a world that has this infinite scream passing through the world, the nature. And so this all part of the infinite scream, God is redeeming a world that's in an infinite scream through the one who's going to be born from the Jews, Jesus, who's going to die on the cross. He's going to destroy death. Somehow he's going to destroy all the false gods that are bringing about this world of violence and this infinite scream. Somehow the death and resurrection of Jesus did that, the New Testament says. Jesus destroys death. He destroys sin on the cross and he breaks through the other side of death and he's the first of a new creation that's going to happen when he returns and brings resurrection and restoration to the entire world, the restoration of all things, Peter says in Acts chapter three. To get here, you got to make sure you got these guys still alive so Jesus can be born a Jew. So Jesus can be born at all. And so, no, I don't like the violence and God doesn't like the violence either. But this is how Jesus has to be born so that he can bring peace on earth. And he can bring restoration and flourishing. That's the story. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus... Very few of us here are Jews. We're part of the promise that God gave Abraham, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, it says in Revelation, that are part of Jesus' body, the church, capital C, this, this body of Christ that's going to be this new humanity when he returns through resurrection, through his death and resurrection. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of this future, you're the beneficiary of all these wars in the Old Testament to preserve the Jews so that Jesus can be born. It's easy when you're not in the pressure 
to look back and say, well, I don't like that. That's great. God doesn't like it either. But you wouldn't be here. Jesus wouldn't have been born without it. And this is part of that context in the Old Testament and as part of that context in history. Now, Jesus said every book in the Old Testament was ultimately pointing to him, the need for him and something true about him. And that's true for Esther in lots of places, but I think in the biggest way. It's what we just read here. This is kind of summed up in chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 22. It says, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got relief from their enemies and their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. See, that's a foreshadowing picture. That language is like language you read throughout the Old Testament that Jesus said was ultimately pointing to him. And this language, even though it's describing something that happened, it's really language designed to foreshadow something that's going to happen. It's foreshadowing why the Jews needed to preserve themselves so that the Messiah could be born. And it's foreshadowing what the Messiah is going to bring when he returns. That's why the last book of the Bible says it kind of like that, but a different way. Revelation 21 says this in verse four, when Jesus returns, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, and this is what Jesus says, I am making everything new. If you don't have that picture of your future, well, one thing is, and you're not gonna understand the book of Esther, but you're not gonna understand your present either. And it really will be, because this is how reality is right now, this side of Jesus' return, even though he's died and risen from the dead, we are still in this world and there will be a sense where you will be trembling with anxiety because you sense this infinite scream passing through the world. And there are times in your life where that scream's gonna be really loud. And there are times in your life when your face is gonna look like that painting because that's reality. But it's also true that you're inside this story it's also true that Peter said when Christ returns, he's going to bring restoration to all things. And then Peter said this phrase, but right now there are times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Right now, because Jesus rose from the dead, he is in you by his Holy Spirit. And he is present with you always, Jesus said. I am with you always until the end of the age. Right now, you can experience the presence of God and the refreshing truth that comes from his presence, even in a world of scream, because Jesus is in you and his promise is for sure going to happen. That's the story your life is in. Amen.